The past couple of weeks, we've been in an evangelism series where we've been talking about how to share our stories and how to share our faith. And as a part of that, we've been hearing some of your stories and some of your faith journeys. And today is no different. We have with us Christina Miller, who's going to come up and share part of her story. And the double bonus today is Christina's going to share some of her story. Come on up, because I made you stand awkwardly. This is Christina. Everyone say hi, Christina. Hello. Um, and in a little bit, we're going to hear from her husband, Baron, who's going to um, teach us this morning a little bit from the Word. So yep. Christina, can you tell us more about yourself, please? Yes, well, I can read it because okay, this is great. easier. All right. Hi, everyone. Um, okay. So when Joe had invited me to give my testimony, I started praying and asking God what part of my story he would like me to share. I began reflecting and threw some ideas up to God. I basically went through a greatest hits of my life with him. First idea was I thought, all right, God, I can start on my childhood. And about how I started to basically, I kind of idealized my brothers so much that I had made my identity around the girls that my brothers liked and didn't like, and the process that I went through and kind of shedding those layers, and the continuing process of making my identity about who God has created me to be. Or I could share about my testimony about when Baron and I were first married, God kind of asked us to give this extravagant giving and tithing, and it was amazing how he, um, how God faithfully not only provided, but for all our needs, but went above and beyond and continues to do that. Or about our struggle with infertility and the emotional pain and challenges that went into that for several years. And on top of that was the adoption process that never came to fruition, but instead, God gave us the two beautiful children who are sitting here before us. And then there's, I feel like I need to put this down. Can I, can I go up here? Okay. Well, I didn't know if it would like, if it would do that weird thing, sound. Okay. And then there's the stories around hospitality and having almost two dozen people live with us in the first 13-ish years marriage of our 13, 13-ish years of our marriage and what I've learned from those experiences. Those are some pretty crazy stories. Um, or some of my personal favorites are with women in a ministry group I was a part of and seeing how the women of all different levels of brokenness can come together and support, love, and encourage one another with 100% realness and 0% judgment and seeing God move in those places. Super powerful. And lastly is being a military wife um, and the lessons I've learned moving around every few years and seeing God bring people into my life at the right time and watching God move through those times. Once I was done bringing kind of all these greatest hits up to God, I felt him say, well, what do they all have in common? And after thinking about it, I realized that in all of them were two common factors, some very painful moments and a true release and control and with that, a reliance upon God. In that pain was when I grew in my faith the most, when I felt overwhelmed and in our conversations or situations that I had no idea how to respond to. I saw God over and over again give me the words to say and work through that situation. And also over the years, God has brought people into my life that upon sharing these specific stories have brought them encouragement. It has also worked the other way as well when women share their stories with me and the needed encouragement that had brought to me. When you open up and share your life, quickly realize that you are not alone. I believe that is how God's kingdom is supposed to work. 
when we are open to sharing our life with others, God brings the people to listen as well as you to learn from too. I love that. So that is what I figured I'm here today to share with you all. If you find yourself in a situation when you're hurting and it is hard to see what God is doing and how you fit into it, you are not alone. Keep praying and trust it will be revealed in the right time. If you feel unqualified in a conversation or a situation you find yourself in, pray and ask God for the right words, and he will be faithful. He's always faithful when we trust him. The other thing I learned in all this is that it may take years or maybe never to see even a glimpse of the bigger picture that God sees, but he's always working, and there is good in even the hardest situations. And I'll leave you with my favorite verse. It has brought me encouragement so many times, and maybe it will for you as well. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works together for good to those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. Thanks. Um, there are still opportunities. If you'd like to share snapshots of your story, um, we'd love to know that, and we'd love to let you do that. So let Joe know, joe at centralcity.co. Christina's email's up there if you want to send her a word of thanks or encouragement or just connect with her and learn more. Uh, she'd love to talk to you, too. Oh, good morning. How are you? My name is uh, Baron Miller, and before I get going today, I want to uh, kind of share with you a few things just about who I am and introduce myself. First, can we pull up the slide that had my wife's email? The, the first things that's important to know about me are I am the plaid space in the back here. I'm the plaidish area. And it's also important to notice that my wife and I still actively use an AOL account. That's real. That's like our shared account. Uh, <laughs> and it still works. I don't know who pays for it. But it's real. Um, so that was my wife, Christina, and uh, I am Baron, her husband. And I am in the Navy, and I want to kind of set the stage here as I, I get into sharing a few stories this morning. We're going to talk about neighboring. We're going to talk about some radical stuff that Jesus calls us to uh, in the realm of neighboring. And beforehand, I just want to kind of tell you a little bit about me. I'm uh, uh, I went to college, I went to seminary, I was a pastor, I'm from the Northwest, Bellingham, Washington, what we call the fourth corner. Um, before all that, I was in the Marine Corps, that's when I met my wife, Christina, that was in the 90s, some of you might not have been born yet, and, um, and, and shortly after 9-11, I felt this notion to maybe come back and serve, but I didn't know what that would look like. I knew it wouldn't look like what it had looked like for me before uh, when I was in my early 20s, and so I thought about this idea of being a Navy chaplain. And so that's what I do now. I went to seminary. I worked in some churches. I planted a church in 2007 that is very much akin to some of the same philosophy of ministry that our very own Central City Church has. And uh, and I came in the Navy at around uh, 2010. In 2011, I was working with an organization called Seabees. If you ever heard of what a Navy Seabee is, they're combat construction men, they're dirt sailors. So I love them because they've never been on a ship, and I have a personal goal to never be on a ship, even though I'm in the Navy. Uh, so I still have never been on one. Um, after that, as a family, we went to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, where, as we like to say, it don't get mo better. And... Uh, Ba boom -tsh. 
Uh, and then after that, I went to work in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, an organization called MARSOC, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, I'm also, we are second service people. So you've never seen us before. I was standing in the shower this morning at six thinking, you all are nuts. <laughs> Why are you doing this so early? It is crazy to me. And there's a lot of, yeah, no babies, I heard about it, our kids wake up, yeah, I get it, I was there once myself. So uh, before we get going, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is good to be in your presence this morning. It's good to be in a community of believers whose hearts beat after your own heart. Lord, for all of us in the room today, open up our minds and our hearts to what you will have for us right now. And for me, Lord, open my lips, my mouth can bring forth your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin talking about neighboring by a neighbor I had. In 2016, we left Guantanamo Bay. We went to uh, Camp Lejeune. I worked with an organization called MARSOC. MARSOC stands for Marine Corps Special Operations Command. These guys are, are what's called Marine Raiders. They're, they're big. They love dip. Uh, they have a lot of tattoos. And, and they, they love you know, adventure and excitement. And one of these operators was my neighbor. I moved into our, our house, and my neighbor was one of these operators. And I was excited to get to know him because I could kind of use him to figure out how to be a better chaplain to this very unique and unconventional community of special operations. And Sam is his name. He fits the build to a T. He's tall and brooding, and he has lots of muscles and lots of tattoos, and he stares awkwardly and quietly. And, uh, and, and so I used to go to Sam's house after work, and in his garage, we'd sort of hang out, and it was, his garage was this amalgam of like part weightlifting, part tinkering. It was just this perfect environment. And... Uh, and I was there one day, and Sam is working and tinkering on his, um, his body armor, right? We call it a kit. And I, and, I, and I look, and his gear is different. Special operations, his gear. Anybody in here like gear, sports with gear, anything? No, I'm the only one. If you like gear, these guys have like tens of thousands of dollars of it in their garage. And he's tinkering, and I say, Sam, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I'm setting up my kit for DA. And I go, what's DA? He goes, well, DA is direct action. I go, what's direct action? He goes, you know, it's when we take down a house or a building or something like that. We go in, we save the good people, kill the bad guys, that sort of thing. And, and every mission set that these guys do, things are, are built a little different. And so I said, okay, well, what do we got going here? And he shows me ammunition, magazine pouches, radio pouches, tourniquets, all this stuff. And, uh, and I said, okay, in the DA mission, Sam, in the stack of guys that, that go in, where are you? And he lights up in his eyes. He goes, I'm the one man. I go, what's the one man? He goes, well, I'm the first guy in. We breach, blow the door. We go in, I'm the first guy in. And I think to myself, you're either the most courageous man I've ever met or absolutely a nutter. You are crazy, sir, because you are going to eat every bullet that comes in, right? And so Sam's the one man, and he's telling me about what he does and all this stuff, and I'm just like, I can't believe this guy's my neighbor. I've never felt so safe. Uh, <laughs> Because as a chaplain, I'm a non-combatant, right? I, don't, I go to war and I don't carry a gun. And, and, and so I've got this super warrior hero guy next to me. Living, and he's got a wife and kids. And he's a great guy. And, um, and, and Sam and his wife and family at the time, they, they have no real relationship with the Lord. And so as a Christian, I'm always aware of the opportunity I have to be a neighbor, right? The opportunity I have to love people. And, um, and so I started asking Sam questions. And one of the things I noticed about his vest is on the, on the back of it, he had some pouches for some ammunition, some magazines. And it's not like he's a samurai drawing a sword from back here. How do you even get this? I said, Sam, how do you get this? And he goes, well, that's for the guy behind me. 
Now, Sam has also said things to me like ounces are pounds and pounds are bad, right? So everything has to be lightweight, high speed, low drag, and he's got this extra couple pounds of ammo on the back. And I say, well, you're just a nice guy? You carry it for everybody? He says, well, no, we all carry it. Because if we get in a gunfight and we run out and we have to do a mag change, we pull it from the guy in front of us and just keep going. And I thought to myself, these guys with all the bravado and the machismo and everything, there's a, a selflessness. There is a taking care of the person next to you, in front or behind, that is not like something that most of us experience in our day-to-day, right? In the line at a McDonald's, I really don't care about the people in front or behind, right? I just want to hurry up and get my Big Macs. Um, And so I share you that story because Sam, over the course of the years and our friendship together, taught me so much about how to be a chaplain to these folks. And in the course of our time together, Sam and his family's relationship with the Lord, it has ebbed and flowed. It's gone up and down, sometimes a couple steps forward and one or two back. That's just kind of the way it is. And I think if you've been part of this evangelism series in these last few weeks, you'll see that it's not a tidy bow like that. That evangelism isn't about adopting people as a project, right? Sam and his family were never a project to me. But it's funny, as, as Pastor Joe rolled out last week, this evangelism sort of neighborhood challenge, we've got some extras in the back if you want to grab one of these at the end of the service. But the very first step is listening. And that is what I learned from Sam. If I want to be a good pastor to these guys, it starts with asking questions. It starts with listening. It begins with seeing him as an equal, not a project, but something, uh, someone that has uh, something to contribute to my life, to teach me. And from there, the playing field becomes very level very quick. From this premise of listening is how radical neighboring begins. And that's what we're going to hear about today, the simple but the not easy of neighboring. It's simple, but it's not always easy. And what I hope is that we find that in neighboring, there is this pillar of healthy community. That's what neighboring is, and it is central to living how God has designed us to live. And so we're going to see what Jesus says about it and what some other biblical texts say, and we'll find that neighborly love is sacrificial, it is uncomfortable, It is radical and is totally honored by God. If you brought your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to put this text up on the screen here. Starting at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We call this in Christianity the great commandment, right? We've heard we've got a great commandment, we have a great commission, great commission comes later. This is the great commandment. And it's important to note that the same sentiment occurs in other places in Scripture. Jesus is simply echoing what Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19.18 had already said. This is well-trod territory for God's people. Loving God and loving neighbors as yourself is important. And so it's got to be important to us. If Jesus is talking about it, we've got to pay attention. One of my mentors in seminary, a guy named Bob Lupton, he was a pioneer of urban ministry in Atlanta and uh, came came out of the Vietnam War and said, I want to love my neighbor as myself. And so 
Atlanta city has been a laboratory for him and so much of what he has done as a Christian community developer. And in one of his books, he asked this question, I wonder what a church would look like that measured its success by the quality of its members' neighborly love. Think about that. Right? In churches, we can measure success a lot of ways. We can do it by people, right? Butts in seats. We can do it by tithe dollars. We can do it by certain things. None of those are really great measurements for how successful we are. But what if the strength of Central City Church and every other church like us had more to do with the quality of how well we together loved our neighbors? To do this, we need a theology of neighbor, which is an understanding of God's view of neighboring so that we can carry out this great commandment. We need to capture the importance of practically loving our neighbors if we are really to be a gift to the places that we inhabit. A lot of us have a good theology of place, right? That means that God has put me in this place, it's for a reason, and this is like my tribe, my people, I'm gonna minister. But we wanna go beyond place. We don't wanna be just in a place, we wanna be for that place, in it and for it. And that's where theology of neighbor comes in, being for. One of the... uh, Groups in church history I've always been fascinated with is this group of ascetics, these monks from the fourth century in Egypt. They're called Desert Fathers, Desert Mothers. And they were like these Yoda-type figures in the Dagobah system, right? They were were Christians that were fleeing from the big cities, the urban metropolis, and the popular Christianity, and they were living in caves and, and, and such in the desert. They'd call it a cell. And they were known for these wisdom sayings. And folks would come and sit at their feet and kind of learn from them and get mentored and discipled like, hey, Desert Father, tell me you know, how to live and help me out process Christianity and stuff like that. And even though these folks were kind of reclusive, they knew a lot about neighboring because survival was everything in the desert and you had to do it in community. So from the surface, they seemed like these Luddites that were way out there doing you know, their own program when the truth is they were very uh, connected. And so they're known for their, for their wisdom sayings. And here's one of them I want to share with you. Abba. Give me a word from God. The wise mentor asked if the student would agree not to come back until he had fully lived the word. Yes, the eager young student said. Then this is the word from God. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The young man disappeared. It seemed forever. 25 years later, the student had the temerity to come back. I have lived the word you gave you have another word? Yes, said the desert father, but once again, you must not come back until you have lived it. I agree, said the student. Love your neighbor as yourself, said the desert father. The student never came back. Now, he might have never come back because he simply died because it took him 25 years to do stuff. Like, I'm thinking there's a lot of life to be lived in there, right? I understand the point of what the author is saying there, right? That it's a challenging and a hard word, right? It is difficult. Loving God is hard. Loving neighbors can be even harder. Today, we often consider neighbors as either people who are immediately next to us in geography, or we have this global perspective, we're all interconnected, everybody's my neighbor, and it is so vague, it it can be left void of meaning. And so Jesus very specifically challenges our notion of who our neighbors are 
in the book of Luke chapter 10 with this parable, this story he tells called the Good Samaritan. If you've got your Bibles again, you can turn there. It's going to be up on the screen. And it sounds like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And I'm so grateful that Jesus says this because it perfectly segues into what I'm talking about today. (laughs) In reply, Jesus said, A man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, or a man was, when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. It's a whole separate sermon to talk about the nuance of the Levite and the priest and Samaritans and all this stuff. I'm going to save a lot of those details for another message another time. But I want to ask you this question. Who are you in that story? Who do you identify with? Think about it this week. Luke chapter 10. Meditate on it. Who are you and why? Because within this story, Jesus defines a neighbor as one with whom you are in contact with that is totally different, someone who could be half dead, is helpless and vulnerable, possibly forgotten by others, someone typically who you would despise and could never repay your mercy and your care. And yet we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the great commandment. Dare I say our neighbor's life matters. Hashtag neighbor's lives matter, right? It could be our next t-shirt. Neighbors' lives matter. And so as we build this theology of neighbor, we have to add some meat to it, right? How do we actually do it? Our love needs action. If we want to uh, wait around for this good Samaritan opportunity to occur in our life, this dare to be great moment, we are reducing Jesus' behavior to just momentary instances of kindness. And that's not what we see. And so there's three ingredients to loving neighbor I want to cover today. And they're not the only three, and they're not the biggest or the best three. But for the sake of, you know, a single sermon, I want to give you guys something, all right? Something that we can take home with us. The first ingredient to neighborly love is reconciliation. I want to read this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. This is what Paul says. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. 
All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Here, that church, we have this message of reconciliation committed to us. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When we become intentional about ministering to neighbors and begin uh, to love our neighbors as ourselves, we practice this ministry of reconciliation. And it is central to neighborly love in that it involves the risk of opening up our lives to whom we may not share any affinity, but which we have much commonality, okay? When we model Christ's greatest commandment to our neighbors, we are modeling a counter-cultural way of relating, and here is why because we all naturally gravitate towards people who are just like us, right? We have these lifestyle enclaves, right? We join the groups of people like us and, and things like that. And our ideal friend may not work in our, the cubicle next to us or in class with us or live on our street. Neighboring is one of these ideas that I think we can often take for granted because we think if we don't have any issues with someone, then everything is fine, Right? I have a problem, I've got no beef with my neighbor, therefore I'm loving him as myself. Right? But it doesn't really work that way because the very nature of love is active, it's not passive. Another great quote on this is from one of my most uh, favorite theologians, Bono from U2. And he says this, he says, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's apathy. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's apathy because love requires passion and energy. And so its opposite is doing nothing. And that's how many of us live our lives at times. We view being a loving neighbor, we do nothing. We think least resistance equals obedience to God and it's just simply not true. And so to follow God's model of reconciliation, we must be willing to reach out, to be reconciled with others, regardless of their socioeconomic status, their culture, their race, their religion, their gender. If we ever hope to lead people into a reconciled relationship with Christ, this very mandate that Paul gives us, right? This is the message I commit to you. It's a message of reconciliation. All of our biases must be examined, and when we do this self-reflection, we'll notice we are far more sinful than we appear on the surface. In 2011, with these CBs, I, I, I checked into this command in January of 11, and six months later, I was in Afghanistan. And as a chaplain, with the CBs, I was based at a Camp Leatherneck, it's a big Marine Corps FOB, a forward operating base, and I got CBs at all these little FOBs everywhere, so I would travel and fly and visit them, and, and I went to one such little patrol base, it's called Patrol Base Beatley. It was like six times the size of this room, it wasn't that big. There's about 30 Marines there, there's about 15 guys called ANA, which is the Afghan National Army, and then there was about half a dozen of my CBs. And I would go to these places, I'd hold worship services, Bible studies, and do counseling and things like that. And so I'm doing one such worship service and the, the, the camp commander there, this Marine lieutenant, says, hey chaps, because when you're the chaplain, they call you chaps. Uh, we're gonna kind of keep it on the down low that you're the chaplain. We don't wanna create any weird stuff with the ANA guys, they're all Muslim, it's Ramadan right now, Ramadan's about to be over, so we just wanna be respectful. I said, absolutely. So I do my worship service behind a tent, kind of in a corner, right? And it's just me and half a dozen guys sitting on some tires, and uh, we, we pray, we do our thing. 
And the commander of the ANA walks by and he sees me. And I got a stole on, it's got a cross on it, and I got a Bible, and it's like, oh, you caught me. And, uh, and so that night, Ramadan had ended maybe that day or, or the, the day previous. And so the ANA guys all hang out and they sit and they enjoy some, some tea and, and some meal together. And they called me over to chat with them and they started talking to me. He said, Are you a Roman Catholic? And I said, no. Now, I was getting a little nervous because the re- like, I didn't want to get killed. And I didn't want somebody to have this bright idea that they're going to be a martyr, they're going to kill the religious leader of the Protestants, and then there's this big gunfight and all this stuff. I would sleep in a dump truck, not in the cab, but in the back because I was ensconced in steel because I was like, I just don't want to get shot in the night by these guys. And, uh, and so I was a little nervous going. They said, are you Roman Catholic? I said, no, I'm Protestant Christian. And they say, that's interesting. Do you guys have a hodge? Oh, like a pilgrimage? He goes, yeah. I go, no, no, not really. He goes, would you guys do Ramadan? I go, no. I mean, we do this thing called Lent, but it's kind of weird. We fast from Facebook. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not what you guys, it's not what you guys are doing, right? Like not eating food for 40 days and just drinking water at night, you know? You guys are pretty hardcore about that. And, uh, and he says, are you a parent? I said, yeah, I've got a son and a daughter. He says, you had a son first? I go, yeah. And they were like, wow, you're blessed. Like, you had a son first, a man-child? And then one of the guys said, you kind of look sexy like George Michael. And I thought that was a weird thing to say. <laughs> Let's see this photo. And so I share this story so you can see which one is me, uh, the one who's not been fasting for 40 days. Um, <laughs> So I shared a cigar with these guys, and it looks like I'm in a cave somewhere. I'm not. This is just sort of the austere living there. Um, Reconciliation. These guys took some risk, and I took some risk. And show the next picture. And then they brought this out for me. Much better than what the Marines had been giving me, let me just tell you, right? So suddenly I'm having tea and I'm eating goat and uh, definitely paying the price for it later on in the next day or so. But, you know, they've got some, some chickpeas and some cookies and some tea and they're sharing with me and we're learning about each other in this super non-threatening environment. It goes back to listening. Look at that roadmap that Joe created. It makes sense. If Jesus intentionally pursued us when he didn't have to, do you think that we should pursue others? If we want to see right relationships, it will happen by an outpouring of the love that comes from our relationship with Christ. Again, church, this is simple, but it's not easy. If we want to be obedient to Jesus, then we must commit to loving our neighbors. And that means more than smiles and warm emotions. It means engagement with the lives of those around us, just like it did for the good Samaritan in Jesus' parable. I think next week's Grandview Hop on Saturday night is a great example of this very thing. Not only do we need this theological understanding of reconciliation, but we have this second point I want to talk about briefly, and that's hospitality. My wife had already shared that we have had about two dozen folks live with us over the last several years. A lot of crazy stories around that, and if you plan on inviting people into your home for any period of time, please talk to us. We have lots of lessons learned. There's something very special about opening up your home to folks, okay? In hospitality, Christians have an opportunity to practice practical love and get to know people who you may not otherwise belong to your uh, usual circle of friends. Hospitality does not always have to be a formal dinner. Within our neighborhoods, there's a myriad of things you can do. You see somebody moving in or moving out, you can lend a hand. Uh, Pregnant moms can use a, a, a shower maybe. If somebody's building a fence, jump in and help them. Host a dinner, host a, a Christmas holiday type party. 
The list can go on and on. One of the things that we like to do is host s'mores nights in our backyard. We got a little fire pit. We invite some neighbors over. It costs me about $10 in marshmallows and chocolate. They bring a chair. Kids run around. It's really a way for me to not parent because I assume that there's a collective parenting going on with the kids. And so I'm, boy, Joe has seen this, actually, how I do this very thing. I just kind of don't do much. Hospitality. And the third one I want to mention is selflessness. As we practice reconciliation and hospitality, it helps to have a general understanding of economy and poverty and how they relate to selflessness. You see, within our consumerism culture, we get what we want. If we can't afford it, we charge it. You're not alone. I do this thing too. We can easily slip into an ethos that has little or no regard for creation or humanity in our pursuit of stuff. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Simply put, selfless people are good sharers. Here's a few other verses I want to rattle off really quick. Hebrews 13, 16, and do not forget to do good and share with others for for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Galatians 5, 13 through 14, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, Paul is saying the very thing that I'm, you know, he segued perfectly into it. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. Luke 6, Uh, 35 through 36, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Church, what do we have to lose if we live this way? What is really at stake if we do radical neighboring? we do hospitality, if we become sharers, if we, if we, um, if we reconcile any differences or, or, or whatever's going on with other people around us, we take those risks. In the year 2000, and I'm going to close with this, uh, what else was 2000 called? Y2K. Y2K. Y2K, everybody is buying gold and burying it, and all the bank systems, if you had electronics in your car, it was just going to, at midnight, just power down. Even my grandmother bought a rubber mallet and hung it on a little hook by the door. Her security system was that if somebody bad came to the this is what my grandmother told me, if somebody bad comes, Baron, I'm just going to bonk them on the head with this mallet. Fear and pandemonium was sweeping across the country. And, uh, and my wife and I had just started uh, dating. We met in 99, and this is in North Carolina, so this might tell you a few things, but um, there was a guy in our church who was the archetypal stashing away stuff for Y2K. He had a generator. He lived in a trailer. He was hoarding water and food and guns and ammo. I went to his house once. I sat on the couch, and I'm like, huh, JR, what's this? There was a gun under the, the cushion, just a pistol. Because you never know if you're just sitting there and you got to like shoot someone, right, in that moment. And, uh, and so JR was hoarding all this stuff. And I remember at like 22 years old thinking to myself, just, I thought we were supposed to be sharers. Like if I got a generator, I got a bunch of water, a bunch of food, I feel like my job should be to share this with the people next to me, not shoot them because they're thirsty and hungry. 
And I was watching this play out across the country. And I was young, I hadn't been to seminary, and I wasn't thinking that deep about stuff, but I thought deeply about that. And that, that year 2000 probably put me on a trajectory of neighbor and neighborly love and trying to examine how Jesus says to live because I saw it in such silly contrast in the church at that time. So let's live out this gospel love. Let's live this way. Jesus called us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It isn't just good advice. It's good news. Let's pray. Lord, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging and a deep calling to love our neighbors as yourselves. And Lord, you concluded that story about the Good Samaritan with the statement, go and do likewise. And that, Jesus, is the simple but not easy. And so I pray for us in the room today, Lord, that you give us the courage to live out loud our faith, to risk relationships, to be the hospitable you know, sharers that you've called us to be. Let's worship, church. Let's stand.